He's got to be pleased with that. The crowd is just on his feet here. He's a Cinderella boy. Uh, tears in his eyes, I guess, as he, as he lines up this last shot. He's got about 195 yards left. This crowd is going deadly silent. Cinderella story out of nowhere. It looks like I'm a rat. It's in the hole! It's in the hole! Hello and welcome to week 20 of a Good Talk Spoiled Golf Podcast. I'm Bobby Donnelly and I'm joined this week by James Richardson. Hey James. Hi Bobby. And I'm joined by Alan Donnelly. Hey Alan. Hey guys. Good to talk to you both. It's um, quite enough week on our own golf games really. There wasn't really much going on. We all played but there was, it was fairly non-eventful wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much, certainly in my end. Yeah, it was quite enough in my end. I didn't play at all this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I did play a um, four-ball competition last week, though, and I had a four-ball <laughs> match that I won nine and seven. <laughs> we, no, we won't talk about that. We talked about that last week. Oh, no. I know you talked about it last week. I, just <laughs> to, uh, I know, I know. <laughs> just wanted to remind everyone out there about it. I spent the last week trying to get get that out of my yeah. memory, so that's why, that's why I mentioned that now. But as I did mention last week, you played very well, and you, you were on good form. No wonder you just said there's no point playing anymore. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah, give yeah. Up. Barry's not with us this week. He's actually playing playing at the moment um he's actually giving us live scores but i think he's one over after two so there's nothing really worth talking about but i think he had an event you, you played him james on saturday he had an eventful enough weekend he did I, well in the president's prize yeah, yeah it was the president's prize event at the end of the weekend and he was doing really well and got into the slight rough on the 18th with a chance to win it and he double bogeyed 18 from uh, how far out was he on 18 Probably no more than 100 yards. Oh. Flag at the front, water to the back, and he put it in the water. And how, um, so he double bogeyed the last. How far How? How far off was he winning it? Two shots. Oh. Two shots. Oh, no. And what was the story with the shot? He boned it, obviously, over the green, did he? Yeah, it depends on which version you get. If you get Barry's version, it's very different to how I remember it. <laughs> he makes it sound like it was the greatest water shot ever hit. Um, <laughs> the purest shot. My, my memory of it was that he bladed the wedge, went flying through the green, and went straight into the water, and all we could hear from the fairway was, please sit, 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 <laughs> sit. <laughs> please, please just be on the green. Uh, though he he claimed afterwards that he didn't realise he was on a good round at the time, but mm. uh, he then also suggested that he had to go for it because you can't go low enough in competitions. Uh, though I think I would possibly disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that's why he was hitting three iron off all the tees because he was going for it. Yeah, three three <laughs> iron off seventeen went about forty five yards down to the bottom <laughs> of the hill. Uh, he had a three iron off 18, uh, which went about 45 yards in front of him as well. So, yeah, I, I, I would have left the three iron in the bag after a while. He's hitting the pure by the sounds of it. Yeah, but he didn't realise he was on a good good score. Yeah, that's sure. the important thing, yeah. Um, poor Barry again in his absence. But in fairness to him, he did finish third. So and he, he did. Got, and he got a prize, and, and well done, his good performance. And in so. fairness, he, he, he was only third by count back as well. Okay. Um, so kind of joint second technically yeah. but you know what he was he was in the mix and it will hopefully stand him over the good, next couple of good, weeks yeah. so. well, no in fairness to me he's playing well so and, uh, despite all our slagging um, very good well uh, this week um, we actually have some very interesting stuff uh, on the show um, we managed to talk to Gary Murphy uh, who some of you may know from Sky Sports and some of you may know as uh, an Irish European Tour professional in the 2000s 
Uh, we have an interview with him later on. Uh, we're going to just go through the rules-related question. Uh, we'll have a look back at Madeira Islands Open and the TPC in Sawgrass. We'll give an update in our Top 200 update. As I mentioned, we have Gary Murphy interview. And then we'll have a look to next week um, in terms of what events are on. with the Byron Nelson and the Spanish Open. So... Um, before we head on, let's move to our rules-related question. Um, Barry has already submitted his answer, so over to you, Alan, for your answer against Barry. It's currently nine all. Uh, Barry has caught up with you, and you're still to go first because yeah, uh, I don't like that rule. You you have been leading, so um, and I suppose actually it doesn't really matter because you don't you're not going to know Barry's until afterwards anyway. So anyway, the this came from Friday night on the PJ Tour, and anyone that was watching would have seen this ruling. So it'll be interesting to see whether you remember this or not. Player A is practicing his putting stroke before he takes a putt. He accidentally hits the ball with the top of his putter during his pra- his practice putting stroke, and it moves a few inches away. How should he proceed? Excuse me. A, he can replace the ball back in its original position without penalty, as he had no intention of moving the ball, so it's not counted as a stroke. B, the ball must be replaced, and the penalty is one stroke, as the player has caused to move the ball while it is in play. Or C, the moving of the ball is deemed a stroke and he plays his next shot from where the ball ended up. I saw this. I was watching this live yeah. and I have no idea what, I can't, I can't what the result was. Yeah, I can't remember who it was who did it, but it also happened previously in another... This is why I'm thinking there must be a penalty involved because they showed somebody, some other guy, they showed a clip then straight away of some other guy hitting it and it came off the toe of his putter. So I mean, you remember a lot, but... Yeah, the uh, except, the, except the important part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go um, replace the ball and a one-stroke penalty. Okay, so B, yeah. Yeah. Okay, very Pretty good. Pretty certain it's not C, so it's either A or B. Okay. Any of you, James? Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with A. A, okay. Oh, no. You can replace the ball back at its original position without penalty, as you know, intention of moving the ball, so it's not counted. So I, yeah, I, I was going to go A. I made a late change of heart there. Okay. Could okay. be right. I'm just guessing. <laughs> so <Somewhere. laughs> Okay. Um, looking back at last week, uh, two main events on the tours. We had the European Tour event, which is the Madeira Islands Open. Um, Daniel Brooks won uh, the event, but I suppose the... The thing that everyone's going to remember, really, unfortunately, the very sad news that uh, one of the players, Alistair Forsyth, uh, his caddy, Ian McGregor, passed away on the ninth hole. He died from a heart attack. Uh, it was very sad scenes, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I didn't see it. I wasn't watching it live. I, I, I read about it afterwards, mm. and uh, it, it's just tragic. He was 52 years old, yeah. um, and the bit that struck me more than anything was the fact that they kept playing mm. after you know it occurred, and I just... The mind boggles that it, it is only a game. I know it's a career yeah. for these guys, but this guy has died on the golf course. Yeah. How somebody, whether it be the tournament director or the players, didn't see sense yeah. not to continue yeah. playing out of respect for um, McGregor's family. You know, mm. that's whatever about Forsyth, who obviously I think he it happened on his eighteenth hole on Sunday, so he was all but finished. Okay. okay. But um I just thought that there, there there should be some sense prevail and yeah. a bit of respect for the family who Yeah. But it's going to be remembered for that, isn't it? Mm. I don't think Absolutely. Uh, the win- Daniel Brooks as the winner is going to ever be remembered. It's going to be the competition mm. that the guy had the heart attack on. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was a farce of a competition as well from the start because like, there was the fog delay for pretty much three days. They didn't finish the first round until the Sunday morning. Mm. So it was a joke of a tournament anyway. So like the, the logical thing would have been just to cancel it. And... I, I suppose the the line they came out with afterwards was that Alistair Forsyth said that um, 
that Ian McGregor would have liked the tournament to be completed, but like that doesn't make it right, you know. No, yeah, it's, yeah. They should have just can't, like it's unbelievable that that they played on, and I think a lot of the players came out afterwards and said the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I wonder is is someone like Daniel Brooks who has won it and he gets his two year exemption. I mean, that's the only thing is it can be very important for somebody like him, and there is something on the line but you really wonder could they have done something else you know come up well, to some sort of arrangement they should have come back the next day if they really wanted yeah. to or something, mm. something like that whoever wanted to come back could come bring back the top 10 back day. yeah something yeah. like that yeah. Um, so yeah no, that was very disappointing um, on the other side of the pond I suppose we had a fantastic <laughs> tournament uh, the Players Championship in Sawgrass and it was a really really cracking leaderboard um, and it was great to see Martin Clammer back on form yes yeah uh, Oh, and actually, I forgot, to, <laughs> I forgot to mention, actually, yeah, very good point, as I get from your smile that nobody else can see. Definitely great for James. Yeah, um, last week, James, we had our, we all picked a player just to have a quick fiver between between the four of us. Uh, I picked Garcia, who did okay. Alan picked Donald, who was there or thereabouts. Barry picked Stenson, who I don't was don't think was ever really in contention. No, he was down the line, all right. But, but all of them are, are pale in comparison to your 80-1 selection of Martin Clymer. And you, you actually mentioned that he played very well the week before and he probably could move on, so it's a good selection. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, show that I'm actually worthwhile having on this podcast every <laughs> so often. So We were all low-balling it with our odds coming in with the real favourites <laughs> and then you just fly a kite out there at 80-1. Well, to be to be fair, I had, I had seen the, the leaderboard from the previous week, and mm. he had been fairly steady. And and he, I, look, if, if you're ever going to bet, it's probably better going down the line than than somebody who's twelve or nine to one. Yeah. But I'd love to say it was scientific. It was yes, like a lot of these things, dart in the board, and it just happened that it came good this week. But it's no, good. It's good. Officially, I'm going to say yes. It was well thought out, and I got the inside <laughs> track. Hopefully, yeah. somebody. When we first, when you first joined the show, you mentioned that. Um, oh yeah, no, I'm not really into gambling, but you're kind of getting used to it. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly it's makes life a little yeah. easier. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're like, doing well. You're so you're golden now. You've another eighty shows uh, before you. Have, yeah, <laughs> everything. Yeah, yeah, you're eighty credits in the bank anyway. So, so that was a good one. The there was a couple of guys on. Um, Butch and McGinley in particular were com- complimenting Climber's ball striking throughout the week, even even before the weekend. Uh, he seems to be back on form. Yeah, I think McGinley went out with them on the Wednesday and walked around with them, and he said he pretty much said he hadn't seen, never seen him hit the ball so well. And mm-hmm. I thought it was it's brilliant to see him back because he's obviously been two years, the goods of two years, working on a working on his new swing, trying to get this. Like he obviously his natural ball flight is still a fade, but he obviously wants to get back, wants to get that draw into the bag, and he seems like he's there now because mm-hmm. the. The brilliant thing I saw was that he like he seemed to be hitting the ball amazing to degree and he was putting very well. But on some of the holes that required a right to left, he was hitting the draw and you could see it on the shot tracer. Yeah. When they were showing it like he 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 has that in the bag now and he's able to go to it. So I think he's I think he's there. And it's great to see him back because I I'm a huge fan of his. I Me think he, I think he's a cracking player. Yeah. And he's and the way he closed out the tournament. Mm. Like the uh he was obviously doing, but he was obviously doing very well until the rain delay, and then he came back and made the double bogey. Yeah, yeah. And he was kind of, he was kind of hanging in there. Obviously, the break didn't do him any good, but I thought the putt he made on seventeen, for me, was shot of the year. Yeah, really? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Respect. The the one thing that I thought was amazing about it was he's he's obviously come back from a rain delay, and the pace of the greens are totally different. Yeah. Because there's been so much rain, the putt must have had about six or eight feet of break mm-hmm. on it when you actually see it from behind. Mm-hmm. And so the pace of the green, he had to get used to them, and he 
poured it right in the middle, perfect pace. Yeah. Under that pressure as well, because he obviously knew if he missed that, that's a bogey. He's level with Furyk going down the last, which is mm. like, geez, you take your four going down the last any day. So for me, I thought it was shot of the year. I thought the way he closed it out was brilliant. Well, I, I think the, the closing out is actually the very interesting bit. We've talked all year on this podcast about guys who are turning up on the Sunday and not closing mm, it out. Yeah. Big names, you know, Rory a couple of, you know, now I suppose a month and a half ago. But in fairness, he hadn't been in the winner's enclosure for quite a while, a lot of changes. And to actually, I know, I think he went wire to wire, didn't he? I think he yeah, did yeah. on Thursday yeah, or something. Yeah. Wow. But it was definitely, the pressure must have been immense knowing that it was a real opportunity fifth major so to speak to actually close it out where other players that have been winning more recently haven't done that mm. um, I, I thought it was a fabulous performance particularly as the players that were beneath them were guys with big names and big reputations like Jim Furyk was I think second yep. Sergio was third mm. you know Jordan Spieth who I think is the next big thing in golf mm. like he just he was phenomenal for most of the weekend to get over the line is the hardest thing they say in golf. Mm. But the way Martin Keimer did it at the weekend, I thought that's tip my hat to you, yeah. sir. And he, but he's shown that bottle as well before. Like you, obviously the PGA when he won that, and then especially the Ryder Cup. Yeah, like he has that. He he has that mentality. He's a he's a man. You kind of he's one of those guys now. You you put your life in him to make a big putt if it came down to it. I was about to ask, would the Europeans in general be better closers? Uh, than the Americans. Like, if you looked at the European Ryder Cup team as compared to the American Ryder Cup team, would they be man for man better closers of tournaments? And then I just realised Sergio's on the leaderboard here, and so did Lee Westwood. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder is that is that a European thing? Does it, they're kind of better in the heat of the moment of tournaments? Don't know. Well, I'd, I'd say it's, I'd say it's more an individual thing. It's yeah. That German efficiency from Conor as well. <laughs> yeah. they're just, He's the they're, BMW they're of, of golf. Unbeatable <laughs> under pressure. Yeah. Yeah, um, no. so it's great but it gets him back into the he's, he's into the Ryder Cup team as it stands now as well which is brilliant mm. obviously and but I think that's absolutely imperative for the European team because it's going to be a very tough Europe, you know, yeah. Ryder Cup this year and we need the likes of the Martin Keimers to, to be firing and to be in form and it's great to see him back yeah. and hopefully and he'll knock on now from this the, the thing about him as well is he, he's pulverising the ball he is hitting yeah. it an absolute mile, and he's, he, he hit three ones on, on loads of the holes. Um, now I did notice on eighteen, which was eighteen, was obviously perfectly set up for a draw, and he did go back to the old fade on, <laughs> on eighteen <laughs> um, under the pressure, which is fair enough. But he's just hitting it an absolute mile. Yeah, yeah. Um, quick thing: Would there be any chance? What would you think is chance of going back to back? It's twenty-two to one this week um, in the HP Barn Nelson. I'd say it's a good chance. I, I would I would fancy him to do it because I wouldn't say he's the kind of guy who's gone out on the absolute rampage after after he's won. So I'd say I, I I'd fancy him to do it. The the lady, yeah, I think I don't think she works for the Golf Channel. She's on Twitter, Stephanie Wee, who actually I don't know if you saw, she took a picture of Climber in the airport. Oh, I saw so that, the yeah. day after he won one point eight million dollars, that he's in the airport flying out. So of course, if it was any me or any of you lads. First class, I'd have two bottles of champagne hanging out of my mouth. He's got Just a... Just two, two bottles of champagne hanging out of you. Oh, yeah. bottles of champagne. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's just his champagne for the moment. But he's sitting down in the departures hall. He's got a rucksack on. Like He looks like... 
kind of just any normal student traveling sitting out with those riffraff yeah, yeah, I was just in the normal people. Probably that German efficiency again. You don't want to waste that money. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that might back up your point. You might say, yeah, I'm on to another terminal. Down we go. So, uh, it's a driver's course as well this week, Baroness, and as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. The, the, only, driving. the only point I make about the idea of going back to back is it is really hard to do that. Mm. Um, you know, I can't think of too many players who have gone back to back other than Tiger over the years. It is a tough, tough thing to achieve. Bill last year, the week before the British Open and the British Open. But I agree with you. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, it is tough. Like, but it's probably harder to do two regular PGA Tour events. I mean, some people are saying, grand, it's a warm-up event for a major. Grand, I win, it's a bonus, and then go on to win a major, mm-hmm. obviously. But, um, yeah, I agree with you. It might be difficult, but I don't know. It kind of might be. It might be. We'll come on to next week anyway. Um, before we come on to our main part, the next bit is our week... 20 update of the top 200 competition now and see might give us a quick update and i don't think probably wasn't too much movement was there no it was a pretty quiet week now um just to give i suppose a quick bit of detail as we usually do um this is our competition where we all pick two players one from the european tour one from the us tour and they must be outside the top 200 in the world rankings so if anybody would like to join just send your two players to um our Twitter handle, which is at podcast GTS, and put your two players in a tweet with the hashtag, with hashtag top two hundred, and we will include you in the running going forward. We'll be accepting entries for another couple of months anyway. Um, but just to give an update, it was a quite it was a quiet week because obviously with the players there wasn't as many, there wasn't a lot of guys mm-hmm. in the top two or outside the top two hundred who had who got in. So there was very there was very little movement up around the top. Um, so the top three has stayed the same. Stephen O'Connor is top at 265. I am sitting in second at 287. And Davy De Grief is in third at 294. Mm, okay. um, so we will post the leaderboard up on the, on Twitter um, later on this evening. People can cool. check where they're standing. Cool, very good. Well, thanks for that, Alan. On to the main topic of this week's show. This week we had a chance to sit down and talk to Gary Murphy. Gary is what was one of Ireland's leading European tour professionals in the 2000s and is currently on Sky Sports as a media pundit. Gary was very generous with his time and we sat down with him a good bit, so we've actually had to split the interview into two parts. So here is the first part of our interview with Gary. Delighted to say today that I'm joined by Gary Murphy. A lot of you will know Gary Murphy from his recent TV on Sky Sports. But also, I suppose during 2003 uh, through to about 2008, Gary would have been, himself and Paul Carrington, would have been one of Ireland's best golfers. So thanks for coming along, Gary. Great to talk to you. No problem, Bobby. Pleasure. We're going to ask you a few questions today, just talking about your golf career in general. Maybe best, as always, to start at the start. And I suppose the first question I had is, how did you get into golf at the, at the young age? I basically got involved um, through my father. My, my dad played at the Kenny Golf Club. Mm. Uh, played a lot of pitching putt before that as a kid with Liam Kerwick who was a, a childhood friend of mine uh, still a friend of mine thankfully but <laughs> so I kind of eased into that a little bit of pitching putt uh, carried from my dad as a kid my dad was a low amateur and he played in the championships and stuff okay um, back in the day before the internet and travel and whatnot to a certain extent we used to holiday around the championships okay so we would have played in the west of Ireland um and especially the south of Ireland and La Hinch, so mm. uh, had a lot of great summers down there and, and really enjoyed just the buzz of the whole thing, really. And would your dad have been a big influence on your career? 
Yeah, he was. I mean, he he was he was pretty hands on to a certain extent and quite hands off to especially when I turned professional. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of let me off, but he was a huge influence when I was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. When I got to about fifteen, I kind of started taking the game seriously, and I used to go out and practice in the mornings um, yeah. before school, and obviously went with him. Um, and he was probably probably my best coach, I would say. Oh, brilliant. Okay, that's great. Uh, it's a great accolade for him. I heard a story before that uh, you were playing Connacht under 22s championship, and I heard that he almost at some stage when you were playing big championships, he might have taken a bit too much interest, and he turned up in his best suit one day to watch it. No, that, that actually, he, he that, that story, uh, he drove us over that evening. Um, yeah. And he was under pressure to get back home, so he was just going to walk a couple of holes. And I think he walked about three or four holes, and I was there with Brian Desmond. Uh, we were the only two Kilkenny guys to travel to play yeah. in tournament. And we were both not playing very well, so he was in his work clothes, and he got up to demonstrate a tee shot on one hole, and, he, <laughs> and it was, the ground was a bit kind of dewy, and on his downstream, he basically slipped on his arse. <laughs> And it was, it was quite funny. <laughs> I stopped him giving advice anyway. Absolutely. You, I understand as well. You became a scratch golfer within about twelve months. Did was that from your pitch and putt, or did you just feel that you were just a natural at the game? Or? No, I don't, unfortunately, it wasn't that quickly. I, I okay. kind of, I played um, my first round. I shot hundred. My first round, my mum walked around. She marked my card. Okay. And the next day, I shot eighty four. Wow. And then I shot an 82, I think. So there were my three cards in three days for my handicap. Um, but I, I was kind of, at that stage, I was it was kind of a summertime sport. I was mad yeah. into football and didn't really take it seriously um, until I got to 15. And I got down to, I think, two handicap when I was 15. And then yeah. got to scratch when, I don't remember so long ago now, probably 16, maybe 17. Okay. Um, and actually, a trials for Ireland under 15 in soccer. And that was kind of what I wanted to do. Uh, and it, it just ended up... That didn't happen, really, in April of 1988. Uh, and then and that summer, just after that, I started going out to practice before school. Got, got a bit of a bug for golf. Yeah. And ended up getting on the Irish boys team, on the under-18 team. That summer when I was only 15. And that was kind of me done with, with soccer and, okay. and pursuit the golf then. Brilliant, brilliant. In terms of when you started off with it, well, I suppose when you were young, what would have been the strength of your game in terms of what was the best part of it? Uh, and maybe through the rest of your career, what's, what's been the best part of your game? It was always my ball striking. It was always, okay. always my driving. Um, an Ireland player, really. But the reason my driving was so good uh, was was simple. In the mornings when I used to go to practice before school, uh, we used to get on the range at about half six and practice until about eight o'clock and I'd all sit about 50 drivers. Okay, every morning. Um, every morning. And ever since then. I mean, even now, I don't really play much anymore and I can still go out and probably hit, I would say, 70, 80% of the fairways with reasonable distance. So driving is something, it's, it's always stuck with me since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, I think it was in 2004, the combined rankings between the PGA Tour and the and the European tour for accuracy and distance. It was number one in those rankings. So wow. those early mornings as a kid certainly paid off. Yeah, I know what I'm doing tomorrow morning. So well, it's funny. I mean, I, and I was saying it to. I suggested that to one of the Irish guys recently who's struggling with this game. Just 
get up at half six in the morning or whatever and, mm. and go and do it because you've nothing in your head so you really have good focus yeah um, okay. you perhaps late in the evenings and your head scrambled from, from the day what's going on during the day yeah and you mentioned you're not playing much at the moment is that just because I suppose your other media work stuff's taking up time or no I, I, I decided that um, pretty much the end of 2012 I'd kind of had enough I'd lost mm. my game and it's in a situation where if you, if you don't feel that you can compete it's quite an arduous job being on the road for 30 weeks in the year mm. and especially if you're not competing you're not making any money so it was pretty simple mathematics it was, yeah. it was costing me 100 grand a year to play and I was earning that so that okay. wasn't going to last forever I kind of um, I wouldn't say fall out of love with the game but I just lost my mojo for it really and sure. I thought I'd, I'd try to do other things and see see kind of where that took me and um, with a young family as well mm-hmm. still do thankfully <laughs> and you know it was, it was kind of a decision just to stop because my game had, had left me really okay okay going back to your I suppose the early days I understand that you represented Kenny uh, in the Leinster final of the Barton Shield in I think it was 1992 did you enjoy the team amateur events. I know there's a, a friend of a friend of ours who's he's a professional now in Ireland, and he says one of the things he always misses was the team, the team parts, and missing the crack of that. And the, the yeah, it was kind of funny. The, the the thing that irritated me playing football was the team aspect that other guys wouldn't do their job and would let me down. Yeah. Um, and then when I started playing golf, I was on my own, and that's that was the big draw for me to get involved in golf because yeah. I really enjoyed the fact that I was in control of my own destiny. Okay. But team golf and in golf uh, as a team, it's completely different. It's it's almost an added pressure, yeah. which I really enjoyed, and I especially enjoyed um, at international level playing foursomes golf. Okay. And then to come back and play for my club, like my my probably one of my biggest disappointments in amateur golf was we got to the All Ireland semi-finals, the Barton Shield '92 in Killarney. Yeah. And, and not winning and the following week was my first senior cap for Ireland and I was Irish champion and I was and it really irritates me now with young kids who think they can play that don't put it in for the club because I was as psyched up for that Barton Shield yeah. or on finals as I was for the home internationals the following week yeah, yeah. and I was very lucky that um, we had a really good bunch of lads probably older most of them were older than me that were mm. on the team but they were kind of the guys that brought me through an amateur golf and brought me to championships and, and Paul O'Rourke especially was one of those guys I learned a huge amount from him mm. he's played a lot in Mount Juliet and, and Dave McDonald and Ger Hogan and, and Richard Duggan and I used to basically play against those guys for my pocket money really oh, brilliant. Okay. and then when I got my standard got a little bit higher I'd always handicapped myself really really sure. strongly to make sure that I had to play my very best to beat them and, yeah yeah and um and those they were really special times and yeah. I think team team golf and, and, and your club is a really, really important thing. And I think a lot of the young kids nowadays, um, they're too caught up in themselves and they don't realise it. But when when they're needed on the way back, you know, if they don't have those memories to fall back on it's it's sad really. Sure, sure, yeah. And no, I completely agree, I love the all inter club club part of it. I think it's it's fantastic. After I suppose soon after the, I suppose, appearing in the Barton Shield in the All Ireland, you went on to play in the Irish Amateur Clubs Championship in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, how hard is it to win 
amateur events? Well, how hard was it to let's say to win an event back then? It was very hard, really. I, I was I was having a really good summer, but the problem with that summer was I was getting caught up with tonsillitis. I tonsillitis three okay. times three times that year, and I actually um, I won my my last sixteen match in the south to get into the quarterfinals on the. I beat Francis Howley on the 13th. Yeah, I know Francis Howley um, from Carton, yeah. And I actually had a car at the back of the 12th to pick me up because I was really, really ill. I had a really high temperature. But I was just playing phenomenal golf. It didn't really bother me. And Francis hauled along putting 12 to get us up 13. So I had to walk in. And for people that know the who kind of walk into the mouth of the green on 14, I just kind of collapsed over and started puking bile and stuff. I was that sick. Oh my God. So I had to get, I went back to the wherever I was staying and had a doctor up, had to get a couple of injections and I couldn't play in the afternoon in the, in the quarterfinals. And then we actually played, that was on, the, would have been the Tuesday, and we played Barton Shields, Leinster finals that Friday and I played in it. But I knocked the ball down for the first five holes. Really? And Richard Duggan, who was my partner, uh, basically carried me through and we lost our match. But Ger Hogan and Patrick O'Rourke won the game behind so by, we had enough of a buffer. So then heading into the close a couple of weeks later, I was in really, really good form once I was fit and healthy again. Yeah. And uh, and I, I had really tough matches at early stages and I had a tough match in, in semi-finals and the final and stuff, but it was, I was really on form and I was, I was mm. very, very confident to to win that tournament. But they're, they're very, very difficult to win. I mean, I was two up in the final of the West of Ireland against Eamon Brady and and lost it on tie holes. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're d- difficult to win, and I probably finished second more often than I finished first in them, but they're just golf tournaments aren't easy to win. That's why people are very manual. That is true. And do you think also, was there an element that there was a lot of really fantastic golfers back then? Because I presume Porrick, um Harrington would have been around at that time, would he, when you were kind of at the amateur events? He was. Like, Porrick kind of, at that stage in 92, um, the standout player was Randy Burns, really. Oh, yeah, he yeah, was, yeah. Um, The standout from the point of view that his game was so exciting. Mm. And it looked like... Because it, in those days, the, not, it, the psyche nowadays is just, you know, you break 70, you want to turn pro. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous stuff. Yeah. But in those days, it was only the very, very cream of the crop even entertained it. I mean, Jody Flanagan was a, a fantastic amateur player. Yeah. Walker Cup player, but... You know, he realised that, you know, he didn't know whether he was good enough, perhaps, but he didn't want to risk it, and he had a nice life, nice family business, and he could play his amateur golf and enjoy yeah, it. But, yeah. um, and he achieved all there was to achieve, pretty much, in amateur yeah. golf. But the mindset nowadays is to, all of them to turn pro. And even the GUI are changing. Like, in, in our in our day, it was almost frowned upon to turn professional, because mm. the GUI were looking after you and supporting you. Um, so there was probably only really I would say probably two or three players up to 92 maybe then up to 95 when I finished maybe only really five or six guys that actually decided to turn pro okay okay and when you did turn pro what was the catalyst for you to turn pro um, I had been on scholarship in America uh, I played against a lot of really good players I competed pretty well I was you know, pretty much one of the best players in Ireland. Probably in '95, I was 
unlucky enough to make the Walker Cup team I had a bad European amateur which was the last counting event mm. I'd been unbeaten in singles for three years between Europeans and home internationals so going into the Europeans, I, you know, I was really, really confident, and I, I got hockeyed in every match. It was just a disaster, um, and that's, you know, that's the way match play golf should sure. go. But um, so I was, I kind of done most of what I wanted to do in, in amateur golf, and felt that my game, I thought at the time was good enough. I mean, it was a million miles away from being good enough, but uh, and I was very fortunate that I had a sponsor who. Um, afforded me the opportunity to, to go and travel and, and learn my trade as such mm. and I just went I kind of have clubs will travel and I went I went to Asia I went to Canada mm. I went all over the place trying to trying to learn basically because mm. you go like when I I arrived over in Asia this guy's never heard yeah. probably people since haven't heard of them but fantastic players yeah, yeah. and it's in their backyard completely different environment mm. um and it, it teaches a lot about yourself as much as anything, but you learn so much more about your game. Uh, and I, I'd like to see a lot of other guys, you know, kind of doing that if they can. Sure. Yeah. This, I think the Euro Pro Tour and some of these tours are a bit of a lottery, really, and it's it's a money-making exercise. You don't actually feel like you've made the transition into from maybe top-level amateur into professional ranks. When I went and played in Asia. Mm. You know, we were playing for 300 grand events, which at the time was, was good money. Wow. But there were, the money was small relative to, say, the PGA or the European Tour. But the returns were on the very same. Yeah. You had grandstands, you had good crowds, you had courtesy cards, you had an atmosphere, you had, you, had, you had a feeling of, well, I'm doing something different here. Yeah, it's not yeah. the same old, same old. And I think, because a lot of the younger Irish guys that turn pro, and if they don't get through tour school and just go up to, say, the Europro, there doesn't really seem to be that much of a transition. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of pulling their trolley around. Yeah. You know, 36 all event up in the north of Scotland, and there's no atmosphere, and it's... Motivation-wise, it's very, very hard to keep going, and that's why the, the failure rate is so high. So if... And actually, uh, there's a guy that I play a bit with, and his brother is um, very good amateur in the country, and he's talking about turning pro... If someone was going to turn pro nowadays, then I think you talked about what some of the young guys are doing. I think this guy's off plus three. But if you were advising somebody to go pro, what route would you recommend them to take it, bearing in mind that something like the Euro Pro Tour may not be the way to go? The route I'd recommend is go to tour school, get your card, get on the tour, and keep your card. Okay. That's that's the only route. Um, I would say Asia is definitely, I mean, you've seen, and, and a, a guy who I like at the moment is Niall Carney, who's Walker Cup star, turn pro, rabbit in the headlights, game wasn't anywhere near where it should be. Mm. But he's still grafting, he's got his head down, he's still working, he's going to Asia, he's doing, the, doing those things, he's coming back, he's showing form. Yeah. Now he's not, you know, he's not a standout player at the moment, but he's learning year by year by year, and hopefully that will stand to him. Because in any of these things, guys need a, need a break. Yeah. You know, whether it might be getting an invite for the Irish Open, have a big finish, increase his belief system. Mm. But he's 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 doing good things, you know. He's he hasn't quite got the, gotten there yet. But that sort of avenue, I think, is is the road that guys should go down. But it's expensive. Yeah. And unless you're, you're in a situation, so if I'm getting to plus three or plus four, and I'm going to go pro, it's going to cost you fifty grand. Yeah, yeah. And you can't go to these places 
and not have any money in your pocket. Mm-hmm. You can't be there worrying about money and thinking about this because it, it's you're going to arrive somewhere where there's probably 50, 60 guys that are better than you. Yeah. And you might think you're better than them, but the reality is they're better than you. So you have to be on on your game to beat these guys. Yeah. You have to be mentally and physically prepared. Yeah. And if you've got stupid stuff going on in your head, you're worried about this or that, can I go next week, whatever, it's impossible to compete. Okay. And okay. I think a lot of the kids, I think, get a good structure in place. If you have to go work for two years, you know, a lot of them are full-time amateurs, and where are they getting all the money from? Yeah, yeah, You've yeah. got to go get a job, save up for two years. Yeah. You can still practice. One of the things I noticed at the tail end of last year is that Peter Laurie, he needed to have a very good event in Perth. Um, he was right on the edge going into the end, and he succeeded, and they interviewed him afterwards. And I thought this would be quite a positive interview, and that he'd be quite upbeat, but he was exactly the opposite. I thought he was very... He actually said that going through what he went through, that he wouldn't wish on his worst enemy. And I'm surprised that even after such a, a good achievement for him, that he was under a, under so much pressure. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a, it's a really really tough week. It's the last last tour. I'm trying to keep his card. I was back in that situation in 2006. You know, similar thing. I was last man in playing in Mallorca, which was a horrible kind of fiddly little course. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot on the line. There's no, no denying that. But I, I was fortunate that I got off to a good start and I was trying to win the tournament. Um, I had the lead after the first round. Uh, I was in the last group on Saturday. I played well on Saturday. I was in the last group Sunday. And up to the 14th in the last round, I, I was neck and neck trying to win the thing. And Nicholas Fast boarded 14 to go two in front. And then I, I three-potted 15. And the second putt was a bit nervy. Mm-hmm. And then I got up in the 16th tee. And I was just gone. Like I, I had this panic attack in my head. Because I reckon I needed about 10 rounds to keep my card in that event. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the position I was in, I was still like in third position. Yeah. But I just got consumed by panic. He would drive. It was a tough tee shot. But I hit in the fairway and a decent shot onto the green about 30 feet. Knocked it about four foot past and I was gone. That was it. Like, it was just shaking like a leaf. Really? Missed the putt. And then I had a good tee shot up the next, which was a tough tee shot. Out of bounds all the way up the right. He couldn't really go left. And um, I had a good drive, which is the hard part. And then on the club, my second shot. Left it short in the bunker. Really tough bunker shot. Got it out. About uh, 20 foot past the hole. And left that about three foot short. No, no. And it was just, it was horrific. And I hold it. I don't know how I did, but I did. So then I got up on 18, which was a par 3, and I had a really good uh, 3 iron t shirt, and it just drifted a f- fraction. It was right down the flag, and just fell off to the right. So I go up, and it's in the green side bunker, which is an easy shot. Mm-hmm. And I get in, and there's like, it felt like there was a foot of sand in there. Okay. So I have a lunge at the first thing, and it just gets out, yeah. and then dribbles back down to my feet. And was oh gone no. at this stage. Oh no. Um, and the stupid thing was, I ended up, I got it out. I hit the same shot again, but it got out and it just stayed up on the sand because of the, the loose sand kept it from coming back to the bunker. And I had about a 20 footer for bogey. Uh, and I was looking at it and I didn't even read it because there's no point because I couldn't hit it where I was trying to hit it. And I just pure instinct and I hit it and I went in the hole. Really? But I finished, oh. I finished 13th in the event. Now, I could have finished something like 
I think it was about 29th or 30th. Yeah. But my brain had malfunctioned that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And that's what Peter was talking about. Yeah. You just lose lose all sense of what's rational. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, pros at times are no different to, you see a guy in Barton Cup or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he's coming down and he needs, you know, they need to power the last or whatever to, you know, people do super things. Of course, yeah. Um, and I think at times when you're really, really good at something and you lose the ability to be really good at it, I think it's almost harder because your acceptance levels are, are zero. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas the club golfer, if he's five, six handicap, and he just starts playing like a 20 handicap or he's not sure. You know, it'll be okay next week. But uh, and that's what Peter's alluding to. It's, it's an out-of-body experience. Yeah, yeah. That was the first part of our interview with Gary. Uh, as I mentioned beforehand, Gary was extremely generous with his time, um, a total gentleman to talk to him, and we really appreciate him, him taking the time to talk to us. I thought the interview was very, very interesting to listen to, James. It very engaging. Yeah, there was definitely a lot in that that I found absolutely fascinating. And, and particularly the bit that I took from it was the, actually the importance that he put on the inter-club competitions. Mm. And I suppose in the week that's in it, and, and Barry is off this week for the Metro Cup and the Pierce Parcel, where I'm hopefully going to be representing Glen of the Downs on Saturday and Sunday, mm. is coming on. The importance of inter-club competitions, not just for the pros, but the amateurs as well, just to, to get used to playing in competitions, playing on different courses, getting used to being a part of a team and kind mm. of all the all the things that come with it. And I just thought that sometimes the inter-club competitions can be kind of seen as a distraction for, for club players who just want to go out and win their, their competitions each week, each Saturday, the major competitions in their club. And they don't really spend much time bothering about the inter-club competitions. I thought that was very interesting, yeah. how he honed his skills, really. And, yeah. and a lot of the, the bits that he took onto the tour started from the inter-club competitions. Yeah, and I, I think that's the thing. He, he also alluded to the fact that some of the pros or some of the young guys who go on don't put the time into the inter-club and they're actually missing out a lot mm. uh, they're missing out on the kind of camaraderie that you get and he you kind of get the sense that he has a lot of very good friends from his time as as, on, on, as a member of an inter-club team it was interesting as well the the contrast he had between being part of a team playing the football and then being part of a yeah. team on the golf and like everything kind of the, the pressure of on the golf side was actually a lot more yeah. Um, but I suppose go- I, I, golf is a very individual sport, so it mm. is great to be kind of part of a team environment at times. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was certainly a, it was certainly interesting to see the importance that he placed in it. All right, coming from a, obviously a professional background, well, or moving into professional background. And it was very interesting about the pressure that he was playing under to retain his card. Yeah, I, I that that's one of the that's probably the thing I found most interesting out of the interview. I thought it was great. It was certainly a great first half of the interview and the pressure in terms of trying to retain card. Like, it's very easy when we're sitting on the couch and we're watching professional mm. golfers yeah. playing tournaments and you're like, oh, geez, such a bottler or something when, uh, <laughs> when someone fails to close to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When someone fails to close out a tournament, you know, you're kind of, it's so easy when you're sitting there and you're looking at it and you're going, geez, I, I, you know, that'd be no bother. But it's amazing to kind of see Gary's insight, I suppose, where he was talking mm. about his hands shaking and like the things that was going through his head, and it just shows the pressure that you're actually under when you're trying to provide a livelihood, I suppose, for your family, mm. trying to mm. support kind of a wife and kids, and uh, it was it was good to get an insight into that, obviously, when because it's totally different to what you see on the TV. 
Yeah, I, I, I love the fact that he talked about the pressure and the idea that he was shaking, physically shaking, yeah. which you just don't see on the TV. Yeah. You just think, when you see these guys, they're cool and calm and collective, and the reality of what's going on inside is just completely different. And I, I like the fact that he said, um, and talked about the fact that it's, you know, at, at amateur level, you, you have that pressure. You have, it doesn't matter whether it's closing out a Saturday tournament yeah. in your local club or winning a major. Pressure is dealt with in whatever way the person can mm. deal with it. But the fact that he, you know, was talking 50 grand a year to stay on the tour, yeah. and yeah. like every putt, you know, and it is really true, like every putt is, you know, mega money for these yeah. guys. Yeah. I, I found it just an absolutely fascinating interview mm. of mm. somebody on tour who's been through it. And yeah. Mm. Good, because well, it's amazing, like when you think, like, sure, geez, if we're out playing a, a Saturday medal and you're kind of looking at 42 points coming down the last or something then you like we'd be feeling pressure and kind yeah. of getting nervous you know and she, all that is is like and you'd be know, you'd just, be blading wedges into the pond at the back exactly back of the yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to pass it off as a great shot <laughs> um, so it's great to see I suppose that these guys suffer from the same thing yeah. you know and that they, that they feel and now obviously it's much more serious for them it's their job sure sure um, but yeah no it was it was it was certainly fascinating too. Yeah. We're all we're all human. Well, there's loads more to come. We have uh, the second part of it next week, so we'll uh, we'll look forward to that. And okay, listen, looking ahead to next week, a uh, couple of actually, I suppose, fair to say, interesting tournaments. I think uh, the Byron Nelson Championship is the is the PGA um, PGA Tour event. Um, Jordan Spieth is the market leader at twelve to one. Matt Kuchar is fourteen to one. And then there's a whole host of another, I suppose, array of the, the top stars. is Jimmy Walker, Keegan Bradley, Mark McClymer, Dustin Johnson, Charles Schwartzland, and, and on it goes. So this should be a cracking event. Um, any bets, guys? Anyone having a bet or any interests? I have four names on my shortlist. Yeah. As I was saying, I think it's a, it's a driver's course. Yeah. So I'm looking at DJ, uh, Keegan Bradley, Gary mm. Woodland, and Mark Leishman. And Leishman, he has a very good record here. Leishman has a cracking record, yeah. And he did well. He finished well last week. Was he just in around the top 20? Yeah, just inside the top 20, I think. So yeah. that's why he kind of shown a little bit of form. Yeah. So they're the kind of, I don't know, they're the four I'm looking at. I'd, I'd certainly pick two from them and have a little little wager. I think Gary Woodland will definitely be one of them. Yeah. And then A, another from the other three. Okay, okay. I had I had two bets last week. I had Zach Johnson and gmac so they didn't do too great in the end so that's kind of just tempered my enthusiasm for for having a bet so i might just might just stick to maybe have a little fire with you lads on on a presenter bet i, I had sergio last week so he's giving me a little bit of a oh yeah <laughs> give me a little bit of bankroll coming good, into this week good solid place um anyone catching your eye james um well, as our I, as our resident tipster <laughs> i guess <laughs> well i i i looked through the fields and i thought uh boo weekly at 125 to one and then mm. i looked at his record at the byron nelson and realized how appalling it was and that's why he was 125 to yeah. one so i <laughs> was rapidly back off him uh i have ryan moore and morgan hoffman uh 33 to one and 66 to one mm. and i'm come on <laughs> Fill in my boots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all, we're, we're, there's so many people out there backing on backing both of those players. Now I, I'm expecting to see the odds. Just yeah, going they're in. moving as yeah. you can see at the moment. The screen is just lighting up like the stock exchange on Black Friday. Close the book. <laughs> Barry, um, I will actually just to have a. We'll probably have our usual little fiver between the four of us just to keep making it a bit more interesting. 
You think you're first to go this week, Alan? I'm going to go with Gary Woodland. Very good. Uh, Barry already expressed an interest in Leishman, so we'll put Leishman down. I'm going to go for Harris English. I think he's kind of in the similar vein to Jordan Speed. I think he's about to really be really breakthrough. I know he has broken through, but I think he could have a very good week. And for yourself? I'm going to go Ryan Moore. Ryan Moore. Okay, cool. So we have those uh, have those players. Again, everyone's piling into Ryan Moore, as you speak and say. Um, <laughs> That's a mistake by a lot of people. <laughs> um, in Spain, um, decent, actually, European tour event. A lot of the kind of, um, mostly, I suppose, tier two European tour players, but some very good market leaders. Sergio, back from the States for his national open, which is great to see. Uh, Francesco Molinari is playing. Jimenez back from his recent wedding, um, back to play in his uh, home event. Then we've Bjorn, Bordy, Loughton, Wiesberger, Kiros, Cabrera Bello, and I could kind of go on to onto a good few more there. Um, any anything here? You you have a big fancy for Garcia, Andy? I am going to pile into Garcia. Okay. I just can't see him outside the top six in that field. To be honest, I hardly even look past Garcia when I look to the field. I'm, um, Paddy Power. He, no, he, he hasn't played much in the Spanish Open. But and it's at a new course it's at PGA Catalonia, I think, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Um, but in a field like that, I can't see him outside the top six. He's five five to one. Yeah, and Paddy Power paying top six is the only bookie who's doing it. So yeah, like the odds are very tight, but he, he's playing very very well at the moment. Hmm. Um, are you going to go each way then? Yeah, I'm going to go each way. Yeah. And what do you think travel wise? Coming where where PGA, Florida to there. Not going to be a major. I don't think it's a major issue for those guys. there. <laughs> first class. You're just going to mark your car just so that if next week he just misses oh, yeah, the car. Yeah. <laughs> I won't be here next week when he if he tanks. Um, I, I'm going to go Alvaro Quiros. Quiros, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's one of my top two hundred, and he had mm-hmm. a really good top three the last time he played a couple of weeks yeah. ago. And every time he does play, which doesn't seem to be that regular, he does seem to be there or thereabouts in the top 10 so I'm going to say and I think he is 35 to 1 35 to 1 yeah yeah, he's a good bet yeah that that is actually a very good bet so I'm going to have a bet on him too yeah (laughs) (laughs) I might follow you on on, uh, I might follow you on Garcia and and your man here on uh, Kiros I'm sold on that one okay cool well that's some interesting stuff Uh, that more or less wraps us up for the week I just have to come to the answer to rules related question Um. So as we mentioned, the player is practicing his putt, accidentally hits the ball, rolls forward a few inches. Very anticlimactic that both Barry and Alan said the same answer, and you're both correct. Um, that the ball must be replaced and the penalty is one stroke as the player is caused to move the ball while it is in play. Interestingly enough that if the ball moves and you go up and you play it, it's a two-stroke penalty because yeah. you cause the ball to move. And also you have to put it back, so it's two, two, one stroke each for both of them. So, just so I think Justin Rose had that. Now I know he was off the green, but I don't know if you saw Justin Rose. Yeah. The other day, where his ball moved off the green. Correct. And then they gave him a two-shot penalty, but then they revoked it. Yeah. Because it wasn't discernible to the naked eye. I think they said that they came to the conclusion that it just oscillated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that even if it did move, you can't see it with your eyes. So I think they call it the Harrington rule, because I think it happened to him first half. There's <laughs> many things you can call the Harrington yeah. rule. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, listen, that wraps us up for this week. So we look forward to talking to you all next week. And thanks, million for listening. Bye-bye, yeah. Well, you're fine. Bye-bye.